We've been journeying through Second Timothy the last few weeks, and we've come as far as chapter 2, verse 14, but I'd like to back up a couple of verses just to remind us where we are in this letter. So this morning we'll start in Second Timothy 2, verse 11. Paul writes, This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In verse 14, he goes on, Remind them of these things, pointing to what he just said before, verses 11 through 13, these core things of the faith. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. One of my favorite verses in the Bible right there, just as an aside. Uh, verse 14, remind them of these things, those essential core doctrinal things. John said that he hadn't written a new commandment, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. First John 2, 7. Peter said that as long as he's living in this tent, in his physical frame, it is needful to stir you up by reminding you. Second Peter 1, 13. Now, Paul is reminding, telling Timothy to remind the people in the church of these essential things. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Now, he, he says, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit. He's saying, don't let them get caught up in these useless arguments that don't profit you. Um, it's a waste of time. Like, did Adam have a belly button? I, I don't know. There's arguments to both sides. I don't know. How many angels can fit on the head of a needle? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It does not play into our Christian faith. Uh, those are things that we can do well to put to the wayside and focus on what is necessary. Uh, they're not edifying to the body of Christ, these things that Paul is talking about. And if we do spend our time on these kinds of things, there's less time available to spend on things that actually matter. Okay, so you're taking away from needful things to give it to useless things. And the things that we need to spend time on, the things that we need to focus on and set our hearts towards is the person and work of Jesus, um, how we will live with him if we die with him, stated by Paul, and how we shall reign with him if we endure. Those are the things he's telling Timothy to tell the teachers to focus on. Now, if you're in the fourth quarter of a football game and you're up by six points, what are you trying to do to the other team? Just run them out of time. You're trying to take up their time tackling you, running the football down the field. You're not trying to stop the clock. You're trying to run down the clock. Um, if you're up and the game's about to end, you're just trying to waste time. And that is what the enemy is doing. He's wasting our time with these kinds of things. 
It says, to the ruin of the hearers. Now, this is not a an issue that um, has no repercussions. Uh, this issue of wasting time, of majoring in the minors, uh, it does create victims. And you can't have a church that's constantly involved in these useless wranglings and expect that body to be healthy and functioning as it should. Okay, it's in fact the next verse or very close, he says, and their message will spread like cancer. He likens these useless wranglings to cancer spreading out of control. Those hearing this babbling are going to be affected by it. I want to draw your attention to a specific church that rose up quickly and then died off quickly. Has anyone heard of Mars Hill Church? up in Seattle, Washington. Um, It was founded by Mark Driscoll and a couple of other men in Seattle uh, several years ago, and it was quick to rise. Uh, They expanded very quickly. Uh, In fact, they had 15 campuses in four states, um, including Washington. And Mark tended to major in the minors. He put a very heavy emphasis on gender roles and marriage. Okay. And there was a, even a big push within this little, I say little big church, um, about the roles that a husband and a wife should have. And that is what he focused on. And that is what his message kind of centered around. He was taking the lazy guys in the church and turning them into powerful leaders in the home. And that was his mindset. Okay. It was, and don't get me wrong. There were plenty of people that came to Christ through this ministry, although it was flawed. Fundamentally, God used it in a way that, that brought believers into the church. The point that I'm making here is that this doctrine This majoring in the minors hurt a lot of people. It caused doubt in many of the members. Um, And you can hear these members speak out personally. Uh, There's a podcast series done by Christianity Today that's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's very interesting to listen and see what this guy, Mark Driscoll, who's largely responsible for this, Um, see what happened to cause him to become power hungry, to try to grab, you know, wealth, um, all these things. And it really stemmed back, according to the series, to his majoring in the minors, to making things a bigger deal than they should have been. So if you focus on Christ and you focus on the doctrinal things that make us Christians, then we're not going to have to worry about uh, the cancer spreading. These, this awful doctrine that uh, tends to divide instead of unify. Verse 15, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, at the beginning of verse 15 there, be diligent, is sometimes translated as study. 
and I know it's that way in the King James. I'm not sure if it's in any others. But it's more aptly translated as be diligent in the New King James. Um, that's just closer to its original meaning, meaning, and it also means to exert oneself. It's more of an, an effort. Okay, We're being diligent. We're turning our attention towards presenting ourselves approved to God. He says, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And literally, that means cutting straight lines. The Wiest translates this as expounding soundly the word of truth. I like that way of putting it. You're just explaining things soundly, rightly dividing the word of truth. 16, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Now, if you have been going to a Bible-believing church, a Bible-teaching church for years, and you've taken time throughout your week to sit down with God's Word, you've opened it up, read it, and it's become a part of you. I'm not worried if you have to leave this church and find another church because you will have that sense of what is biblically right and biblically wrong um, in teaching and morality and everything. So staying in the word in such a way as this protects you against things. Um, and we saw that in Second Peter. The word is a protective layer against attacks from within the church. Okay, so if you have a wacky teacher come along, tell you things that you know are not biblical, you have that little red light come off in your head, say, hey, something's not right here. Then you can go back to the scripture and sort this out for yourself. Um, Psalm 119.11 says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we're going to go into uh, fleeing youthful lusts. We're going to go into... Uh, being set apart for a good work in just a little bit later in this chapter. But keep that in the back of your mind. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. They're not satisfied with just taking a little bit of your time. Okay, They spread, they increase to more ungodliness. They lead you other places. And we'll see with the two men that we're about to talk about, um, their teaching on the resurrection has led some people to discard their faith. So a little doctrinal uh, incorrect teaching has led to people completely dismissing their faith to be lost. But shun profane and idle babblings. Uh, the Latin profana meant outside the temple. Okay, and that's the translation in the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate of this word profane. Uh, in a more general sense, it's that which is not accepted and true. Okay, it's profane. It's outside of what is accepted. So shun those profane and idle babblings. Um, I thought it was interesting that Paul uses this same phrase, profane and idle babblings, in 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. He says, 
O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Saying the same thing he's saying here. Okay, and that sums it up really nicely for us. But both exhortations to Timothy to focus on the things that matter and don't let the useless things creep into the teaching. For they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. So these are the two guys that I mentioned. Okay, Profane things are not static. They'll get in and they'll fester and they'll spread like a cancer. Um, and this was actually specifically speaking of gangrene. You know, if you catch gangrene, you're, you better act quickly because it's spreading. And if it spreads up your leg, if you get it in your toe, it spreads up your leg. You got to cut the, cut the leg off. You got to get rid of it. You have to get rid of this profane and idle talk. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. It seems that these two have led some astray by teaching that Christ was resurrected but now that resurrection is past, and in the future we will be resurrected as spirits. Okay, and that's not accurate. We know that we will be resurrected in a physical body, a physical frame. Okay, we, we're not Hindus, we're not Buddhists, we're not talking about a spiritual resurrection. I believe that this bag of bones will rise with Christ. And when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his own resurrection in Luke 24, 36, he showed them his glorified body, a similar body that we will be taking on. And they were frightened at first because they thought that they were seeing a spirit, a ghost. But Jesus said, no, don't, don't think that. I'm not a ghost. Does a ghost have flesh and bone like you see that I have? Uh, so, he was dispelling this thought even before it sprang up in the minds of Hymenaeus and Philetus. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And this is how I really know that he was in the flesh. He goes on to say, by the way, you got any snacks around here? I could use something to eat. And so they give him some fish and honeycombs and he eats in front of them. Okay, so it is flesh. Uh, flesh and bone, as he says, interesting to me that he leaves the blood out. Okay, Flesh and bones, as you see, I have. We are moving into an ethereal realm of spirit beings, uh, but we are being physically resurrected with Christ. And you'll be able to embrace your loved ones. You'll be able to eat and drink, but you will be bound by different physical laws than we have now. In this place, it will be a changing, but certainly a changing for the good. If the same spirit that lives in Christ lives in you, then he will also quicken your body at the resurrection. 
Romans 8.11 says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's Paul writing that as well. So Hymenaeus and Philetus, teaching wrongly about the resurrection, have evidently influenced and destroyed the faith of some believers. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The solid foundation of God stands. Now, this can read as notwithstanding the subversion of their faith, talked about in the previous sentence, the firm foundation of God stands fast. Okay, The solid foundation of God is here talking about the foundation as the local church. And the church's ultimate foundation we know is Christ. Uh, from 1 Corinthians 3.11. Now, looking at another writing of Paul, Ephesians 2.20 speaks of the church in this way. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we have this idea laid out. Um, the church is a foundation and Christ is its foundation. Remember in Colossians the preeminent position of Christ. He is the cornerstone. He's the one that every other stone in our life is built around. He determines the direction, the angles of all the other stones in this building. So Christ is the foundation of the church, and the church is the solid foundation of God. Having this seal... He says, having the seal, the Lord knows who are his. And a lot of scholars believe that this is quoted from Numbers, actually both of these little quotations. Uh, it says, the Lord knows those who are his. Now, a seal in these days would indicate ownership and destination. So someone who is sending a letter, usually someone of uh, high importance, a high rank, so, for example, the king would send a letter to one of his uh, subservients. He would stamp a seal on the letter to make sure that it was not opened until it got to its final destination. When it was received by its intended receiver, they would open the seal and they would read the letter. Now, this seal uh, is the same sort of idea. Okay, it says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That's the seal that he stamps on us. Okay, he knows who are his. You don't have to convince me if you're his. You got to convince him because he already knows. Okay, so it doesn't matter if, you know, what I think, what you think. He knows those who are his. And that gives me confidence that I will be sealed until the end, until that letter is opened up and I'm with him in paradise. That is the seal. And we can rest in that fact. The Lord knows who are his. He says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 
Now, Paul has talked about right doctrine, correct doctrine, many times up to this. And we have talked about it as many times as he has. But now he's going to say that right doctrine um, is laughable if you don't live right. If your doctrine doesn't match up with how you live, who is going to listen to that? No, it, I'm not. If somebody's living one way and saying something totally different, that does not lend credibility to what they're saying, right? Um, Joe Foch says we need to be walkie-talkies, not talkie-talkies. I think that's hilarious. But it's true. We need to live what we speak. And especially if you're in my position, if you're teaching others, the way I live is going to speak volumes to you about the veracity of what I'm saying, right? So we need to be talkie-talkies. Not not talkie-talkies. We must be walkie-talkies. Let your conduct match up with what you believe and what you profess. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Now, Paul describes the local church as a house with a solid foundation and containing vessels of different kinds. Now, the Old Testament Jews would often inscribe a verse onto their house and it was not uncommon also to see the Greeks, the Gentiles, inscribe a motto or a nice saying onto their homes. And God's house has two affirmations on it. These are the seals that he's talking about here. That the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The culturally contextual Uh, picture that's being set up here is the house of God with these inscribed on it. Okay, these are faithful sayings. God's house has these two affirmations on it, and God knows his own, and his own ought to be known by others by their godly lives. That's what he's saying in these inscriptions. Each Christian is a vessel in this great house, which is the church. But some vessels are defiled, and they cannot be used. So, Timothy is warned to purge, to cleanse, catheterize. Um, If you're catheterized at the hospital, you're drained of the poisons that you can't drain yourself. You're cleansed. Timothy is warned to cleanse himself from the dishonorable vessels, lest they defile him. And this is the doctrine of separation that we see laid out in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. I'll let you go back and read that on your own time. It's the part when he talks about do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Cleanse yourself from all unrighteousness. We don't want to let anything sit and fester 
And certainly don't let it have an inch because it doesn't want an inch. It wants a mile. And it will take that mile by force if you allow it an inch. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So when we are cleansed, we are set aside. He says sanctified. You're set apart from things and you're set apart to things. You're set apart to the master for his good work. And uh, see, spiritual gifts are something that, of course, we are gifted with. We do nothing to deserve them, but they certainly can be watered. You can grow in these things. If you are a teacher, you're gifted with teaching. There are certain things that you can do to help yourself get better at teaching. Although already gifted, you can grow in that gift. You can become better. So that's what he's saying. He's saying uh, you want to be set aside. You want to be sanctified for every good work. Uh, The things that you are already gifted to do, flee youthful lust, which he's about to say, uh, get rid of any iniquity, depart from it, and sanctify yourself so that you are useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now he says, flee also youthful lusts. Now, I don't have to tell you what flee means. I don't have to tell you the word in Greek, and I don't have to expound the definition for you. You know what flee means. If a fire broke out in this building, you would know what flee means. Get out of here. Run as fast as you can the other way. That's flee. It doesn't mean to tiptoe around the edge. If you're looking at the Grand Canyon and you're terrified, you're scared to death to fall over into the Grand Canyon, you're going to get up here and say, ooh, that's a nice view. (laughs) No, you're not going to tiptoe towards the edge. You're going to scoot back and enjoy the view. Okay? So we don't want to tiptoe around these things Specifically here, youthful lusts. And that doesn't mean that you have to be young to experience this. Um, It's a youthful kind of a lust. Um, Curious, maybe. And again, don't give it an inch because it wants a mile. We must flee these things. But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Okay. So we're, we're off to a good start. We've turned around and we've started running. Now we're running around Stephenville or Heiko like a chicken with our heads cut off. You can't just run from something. You have to reorient and run towards something. You can't go about uh, just fleeing things. He says, but pursue righteousness. Faith, love, peace. These are the things which you now need to turn your attention towards. It's good that you've turned your attention away from this. You've fled this. Now turn towards these things. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What a beautiful picture of an ideal church. We are pursuing righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord 
out of a pure heart. It's everyone chasing these things together as one body. And if everyone could turn their attention towards themselves and take care of their own hearts, it could be a reality. We could see this in the church. It's not some magical thing that is never going to happen, okay? And it it may not happen, but it could. If I turn my heart to Christ, you turn your heart to Christ, then we're all pointed in the same direction, okay? And we can see this become our reality, pursuing righteousness, faith, love, peace with all of us who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And what he's saying is, I've already written to you about this, so I don't have to go into great detail now, but you know that ignorant disputes harm people, so just get rid of them. Just don't even pay any attention to them. Avoid them altogether. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. If someone's quarreling, uh, making disagreements with everybody they come across, that is an indication that they are not serving Christ. Maybe they're serving themselves. Maybe they're serving someone or something else. I don't know. But it is an indication that they are not serving Christ. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. And that's hard. I know it is. You know it is. It's hard to be gentle with some people. But that's what we're asked to do. Able to teach. Patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Again, it's hard to be patient. Um, And so just to recap a little bit, your doctrine must be correct. Your morality, how you live, must be correct. And now he's saying your attitude must be correct. All of those things together. And it is hard to be patient, but it's what we're called to do. Um, Especially with those outside the church, with those in the church. Be patient to everybody, you know? Um, You can't go along creating contention within the church because that tends to divide. You can't go around creating contention with those outside the church because that will not grow your family in the church. Okay, so be patient. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Be gentle. Be patient. Be able to teach. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle to be patient with people that I disagree with. You can pray for me about that. And I know I'm not the only one, so, you know. (laughs) But it's, it's a struggle. And meekness should govern our life. In fact... The only time that Christ ascribes a certain characteristic to himself in a sort of autobiographical sense, he describes himself as meek and lowly. 
I am meek and lowly. That is the only time that he does that. That tells me it's probably important that I look at that, that I try to mirror that. Be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. If you're majoring in things that are central to the faith, okay, that pure and right doctrine, the healthy doctrine, then you can help someone stay centered in their faith. Okay, say, hey man, you're kind of going off the edge there. Why don't you come back this way a little bit and then continue on? But if you're not centered yourself, there's no way that you can center somebody else. Um, and I've used this illustration before, but it's like you're flying on an airplane and the, the stewardess grabs the mask and does a little demonstration for you. And what she says is, if you need this, put it on yourself first. Don't put it on your kid and then yourself. Because you put it on your kid and then you pass out, he's not going to know how to help you. So there is a, a certain importance to taking care of yourself to your own spiritual health, uh, making sure that you yourself are centered in the faith. And if you do that, then you can bring some others along with you. And that is a wonderful thing. But it is so important that this bringing alongside someone else is done with humility. Because you can do it in such a way that creates contention. Um, and Paul previously exhorted Timothy to treat those who are older than him as fathers. Don't say, hey, bro, get it right. Now that, that doesn't sit well. Say, I understand that you've been struggling with some things. Uh, you know, I'm here to help, but I do notice it, and I want to call you back to the center. I want you to call you back to the true and right doctrine. So it is important that this is done with humility. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. In this last verse, last sentence here, it says having been taken captive by him to do his will. Him and his are lowercase. We're talking about Satan here. Okay. So this is to do Satan's will. When you bring that person back, you are taking him out of Satan's grasp um, and bringing him back into the sheepfold. Okay. When we guide someone back to Christ, we take them out of that captivity of Satan that he's talking about here. We are going to stop there for this morning, and we'll pick up in chapter 3 next time. There's good stuff to be had in chapter 3. So let's close in a brief word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed for today.